Hi, this is Michael Gebert, and I need to ask you to do something for Nitrateville Radio. Go to iTunes, log in if you aren't already, and leave a rating and a review for this podcast. We need a certain number for an average rating to be displayed. Considering that right now, at least, our average rating is a perfect five stars, that would help encourage other people to listen. But also, the more ratings we have, the more likely we are to be displayed when people look at other film podcasts. So please, if you enjoy this podcast and want to encourage it, take a few moments, leave us the rating and review you think is fair, and help other people find out about what we're doing. Thanks. I used to tell collectors, that 16 millimeter collectors, if they wanted to get a divorce, start collecting 35. <laughs> That'll get them a divorce real quick. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. This episode is all about how films turn up in strange places and in the hands of strange people. First, I talk with filmmaker Bill Morrison whose documentary Dawson City, Frozen Time, uses the films found frozen in that Yukon gold rush town to tell its story in a unique blend of reality and fiction footage. Then we enter an even stranger world, the world of film collectors, with Dennis Bartok and Jeff Joseph, authors of A Thousand Cuts, the bizarre underground world of collectors and dealers who saved the movies. So enjoy these strange worlds, and like I said, leave us a comment at iTunes and subscribe there, or at SoundCloud or Stitcher, so you never miss an episode. Bill Morrison's 2002 film Decasia is a compilation made of nitrate films in the process of decay. Stories and images flickering into existence for a moment, then vanishing. I'd call it dreamlike, but that's a banal thought. It's movies themselves that are like dreams. So these are more like memories in the act of being forgotten. In 1978, a treasure trove of nitrate silent movies from the 1910s was found, partly preserved by being frozen, in the ground of a construction site in Dawson City in the Yukon. Dawson City was the site of the Yukon Gold Rush of 1898. Yes, that's the very one that Charlie Chaplin depicted in The Gold Rush. Bill Morrison's new film, Dawson City, Frozen Time, now playing around the country, is a unique artifact. Blending photos from the real Dawson City, 
footage from movies found in Dawson City, and footage from fiction films of the period to tell the story of a Yukon boomtown. But more than that, to feel over and over that instant when the forgotten past comes alive on fragile, battered film from the earliest days of cinema. I started by asking Morrison about the initial Dawson City find. The basic facts of the Dawson City film find are that um, first the town was built in roughly 1897, 1898, and uh, an enormous number of people showed up in 1898 uh, for the Klondike Gold Rush. And um, what heretofore had been a sort of quiet hunting and fishing camp for the Han tribe uh, in northwestern Canada, about 300 miles south of the Arctic Circle, became a bustling uh, Paris of the north. It was uh, instantly the largest Canadian city west of Winnipeg. They had electricity before anyone else. They had gambling. They had whorehouses. They had caviar. They had champagne. Everything was paid for in gold dust. They had an enormous amount of uh, money, and for the people who weren't working, there was an enormous amount of idle time. And uh, they were quick to build theaters and casinos, and uh, vaudeville acts made their way up there, uh, uh, and eventually bigger buildings got after the gold rush. Um, still was a very wealthy town, and mining became a, uh, uh, a more systemized, uh, mechanized, mechanized, and eventually corporatized business, and the town grew, and uh, around 1910, silent movies uh, got distribution deals and uh, infrastructure put in place, and films would make their way from studios in Fort Lee and elsewhere, and New York, and uh, eventually California, and they would wind their way up through the distribution chains, and eventually they'd find their way to Dawson City. But at that point, they were two or three years out of date, and um, nobody wanted to pay to send them back. Uh, so an uh, arrangement was made with the bank, the local bank, whereby uh, the, all the old films would accumulate and they'd be kept under the bank's safekeeping. Uh, and, but because they were flammable and explosive, uh, they would find ways of getting rid of them from time to time. They'd either throw them in the Yukon River or they would have controlled bonfires, or sometimes they'd have uncontrolled bonfires, and um, uh, eventually people understood how dangerous this stuff was to have around. Around uh, 1929, a bank manager came. He uh, uh, was also working for the Hockey League, the D Dawson Amateur Hockey League, and uh, they'd always had this long-standing problem. The hockey rink was bulging where there was a swimming pool underneath. And once the hockey league split apart from the movie, the local movie theater there, uh, they decided to fill in the swimming pool uh, with landfill. And they thought that was also a great opportunity to get rid of some of these films that had accumulated there. So they threw in who knows how many thousands of reels of nitrate film uh, covered it over with dirt and planks, and built the new hockey rink, um, which stood there for about uh, 10 or 11 years until it burned down. And, uh, and, uh, and a new one was built on, a new rec center was built on top. 
And everyone seemed to forget about it until 1978 when a backhoe was clearing that uh, new rec center to make yet another rec center. And uh, the operator came across this cache of 35 millimeter nitrate films and they stopped the construction and uh, called in a, the Parks Canada who called in the uh, National Film Archive and uh, very quickly a ordinance was set up to restore these films and they were all transferred between Library and Archives Canada and the Library of Congress here in the States. Um, all of it was uh, in fairly short order um, what they were able to uh, preserve which was 533 reels representing 372 silent titles from between say 1907 and 1924 um, and they Return them all. They uh, were able to restore them on a safety uh, 35 millimeter master, and uh, then they were preserved in the uh, respective libraries, Library and Archives Canada, Library of Congress, for the last 38 years. And um, no one really did much with them. There, nobody wrote about them. Nobody made a film about them. I had heard the story about the films that were found in the swimming pool maybe back in the late 80s or early 90s and uh, in 2013 when I visited Ottawa and uh, met uh, Paul Gordon who uh, runs Digital Migration at Library and Archives Canada, I asked him if he had Dawson City and he did and we tar started talking about uh, when they might be able to start scanning that and it turned out they were indeed going to get a new 4K scanner delivered. So I realized that this was a time to make a film about Dawson City, and um, and that's where we are today. Tell me, I mean, how did you conceive of working with this big pile of film? I mean, it was literally a pile at one point. Uh, what did you see doing with it? Well, I didn't know what was in it, you know, uh, but I it was a leap of faith that there would be enough in there that I could tell that story using that footage. You know, I come from an art background and so the idea of you having the content dictate the form and uh, the form reflect the content uh, is very attractive to me as a filmmaker. I think if you said you'd seen Decasia, you would um, you sort of understand where I'm coming from. Uh, I also made a short called The Film of Her about 20 years ago that had used the same premise with the uh, paper print collection that's held at the Library of Congress using some of those films to tell that story of loss and rediscovery. Um, in the meantime, of course, I made Decasia, and then uh, I made a, f a film about miners called The Miners' Hymns, and a film about a natural disaster called The Great Flood, all of which were you know, using old footage from various archives. So uh, it wasn't a big stretch that I could take this project on, and it sort of played to my strengths. So uh, I thought that there would be enough there to be able to tell this story with whatever was recovered from the swimming pool and then looking for supporting material um, on, the, on the town and on uh, filmmaking and on the 20th century where I could. You know, what I thought was interesting was here's – Here's a town that really is at the end of the earth. I mean, it's it's as far as you could get. And at the same time, um, it seemed kind of weirdly tied to Hollywood and the movie industry in that people kept uh, filming things up there. Eventually there would be feature films made about it. Uh, in the case of Chaplin's The Gold Rush and the MGM film The Trail of 98. Um, so there's a lot of documentation of 
of Dawson City for it being a fairly small and and way out there place, and also that uh, the films are being are bringing the world to them at the same time. I mean, you show things like footage of elephants in India just to kind of stress how how odd it is that you know what a couple of decades before would have been so remote suddenly has the world coming to it. Right. I mean, I think it was a two way street. The world was also obviously fascinated with Dawson City. And Dawson City was fascinated with, with the world's fascination with itself. So uh, I think in some ways it started, you know, it, it grew with cinema almost uh, like a twin. Uh, they were born in the same year um, out of the blue. And, uh, um, you know, cinema in a certain way colonized uh, Dawson City from its very inception. There's, I don't know, 12 or 15 Edison titles all dealing with the gold rush and uh, that uh, Robert Bonine and James White shot uh, for the Edison Company um, from those first ships, the SS Willamette leaving in 1897 and um, all the way up to uh, footage that was shot in Dawson City on Front Street in 1899 and, and the mines surrounding there. Um, and then, you know, there were studio uh, shorts like uh, Poker in Dawson City that depicted a rowdy... Uh, a poker game with uh, somebody cheating and somebody, uh, you know, pretending to beat them up. And uh, and then from there, you know, the whole northern genre, which is sort of a forgotten genre, but uh, sort of in the early decades, the first decades of cinema, there was something called a northern. You have the familiar tropes. There's always a gal who works at the bar and there's a, a good Mountie and a bad guy and a you know, a storm and, uh, you know, gold and a bear or something. And uh, this was, you know, there was, you know, 30 or 40 different titles that had used Dawson City and the sort of the Jack London, uh, Robert Service tales that came out of there and the photographs that captured everyone's imagination. And uh, it was a self-mythologizing town. And, uh, and it was a town that wanted to very badly to believe those myths and perpetuate them. Um, and so uh, it, it kind of was like a, a northern Hollywood in its own way. And you can make the case that the same crazy guys who wanted to follow the gold over the Chilkoot Pass and down the Yukon River to, uh, to Dawson City, well, going out to Hollywood wasn't a big stretch at that point. And so it attracted a lot of these people like Sid Grauman and Alexander Pantajev after they got their start in, uh, in Dawson City as theater owners and uh, programmers that they would go to Hollywood and uh, start the big theatrical chains and uh, make the you know, lavish productions and presentations that uh, Hollywood became famous for. And then, of course, William Desmond Taylor followed them uh, only a few years later after working in Yukon Gold Company as a timekeeper. Uh, he he went to Hollywood and uh, became a very famous leading man and even more famous director of 60 silent films uh, before meeting his untimely death in 1922 at the hands of who knows who. Yeah, no, I thought that was it was very telling and funny when you the uh, newspaper headlines that you show for uh, William Desmond Taylor's murder long after he left uh, Dawson City, you know, are all like local boy shot in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they call him a Klondiker. Which yeah, I no, but uh, those guys did not. You know, they held on to it. Uh, uh, certainly, Grauman, um, when he presented Trail of '98, he made a big deal out of his uh, 
Dawson City roots and, you know, uh, you know, told stories of growing up in Dawson to warm up the audience beforehand. Um, I think there was sort of a secret club there that really cherished their, uh, their gold rush experiences. Um, you mentioned that headline uh, that, that appeared in the Dawson Daily News announcing uh, William Desmond Taylor's murder, uh, which was, of course, in headlines all across the country, not just in Dawson City, um, because there was, it was in just a, a spectacular scandal. If we can't imagine something like it was like George Clooney was murdered by another movie star or something like that. It's it just... <laughs> It's just outrageous, uh, you know. Uh, and but one of the lesser headlines would clearly would have been the top headline was uh, Fatty Arbuckle goes to trial again, and his third trial is on the same. You only see it for a second in the paper, but you've already met Arbuckle, who's been through town um, on the stages, and then one of his films was actually buried in the swimming pool, and uh, then he met uh, his own uh, legal troubles. Uh, as did Pantages. Well, yeah, I suppose it makes sense that guys uh, from one boom town would move to the next boom town and and just kind of con- continue, uh, you know, their ambition in the same way. Yeah, they never say, "Well, that didn't work. I guess I'll get a straight job now." <laughs> <laughs> that never happens. You know? Yeah, they just double down. You know. Yeah. Um, so. One thing that I thought is really interesting in the way it's all put together, I mean, you have uh, newsreel footage of the real Dawson City. You've got uh, the photographs of the photographer. I forget his name. It's Eric Haig. Eric Haig. Yeah. yeah, I mean, wonderful, beautifully clear photos of the events as they're happening in the 1890s and early 1900s. Um, and then you also have, you know, what are clearly clips from fiction films often used to kind of illustrate what's going on if somebody's writing a letter you cut to the dramatic scene of someone writing a letter and just the interplay between sort of mundane reality and the heightened reality of film works so well in it oh thanks yeah that was a lot of fun to do that and uh, of course um, I had an idea of where my narrative was going to go and which scenes I was going to need to illustrate what. But I was also just keeping, uh, you know, building my own stock library, if you will, of, of common shots because there was, there's so many familiar tropes in silent film that are used for exposition. Um, for instance, the listening at the door or the writing the letter. Uh, there, there's so many ways you need to, to advance a plot. And so those became sort of jokes about how many times they would appear in different in you know in different fashion with different types of characters in different scenarios and um and eventually we found ways to work those in you know uh certainly with um the shooting script if you will was that fantastic letter that uh Clifford Thompson wrote in 1978 uh un- sort of unheard of in any archaeological find that you fi- you you find something and then put an item in the newspaper and then the guy who actually put it there writes in and says oh yeah this is what that was, and that's why it was there, like, absolutely solving the mystery. And he described in one typewritten page, um, you know, why the films were there and what his role in it was. And, uh, you know, that sort of at one point was my, my script. That was the, the, the actions that he described were the type of image I was looking for in these narrative films. And so I, I, I set out with a list of, you know, of, of subject matters that I was looking for. And then eventually that grew as the film grew to encompass the entire 20th century. Are there key finds in, in the Dawson city films? I mean, obviously the, 
the one that gets a lot of attention is footage of the 1919 Black Sox uh, in the process of throwing the World Series. Um, but are there other uh, other films that, that just really struck you as films as you saw them all? Uh, there are, um, but I don't want, I mean, that's pretty amazing <laughs> what you just mentioned there, uh, that the, uh, the Black Sox scandal in the process of being thrown as a news event, you know, so that's, that's a pretty big find, um, I think. Uh, there was other news events that I thought were spectacular um, that also were unidentified. I mean, when you see Alexander Berkman being deported, uh, there's nothing in the newsreel description that says, and here is footage of Alexander Berkman being deported. I put it together that he was on that boat, and I was able to isolate one of those frames to show him, which matched with another frame where he was identified and he was exhorting people uh, in the the uh, international workers of the world um, to rally against Rockefeller um, at Union Square after, in the uh, wake of the Ludlow massacre of 1914. And uh, in that case, I mean, it's pretty amazing because uh, Alexander Bergman at that point was already a well-known and infamous anarchist who had shot Henry Frick and served 20 years in prison. And there he was in Union Square uh, you know, rallying the troops, uh, you know, for the common man, for the laborer, and eventually a investigation into the Ludlow massacre, causes of the Ludlow massacre was mounted, and uh, the net result is that we have our eight-hour workday and child labor laws. Uh, so this guy went from being a villain to a hero, and you know, five short years later, he's being deported for uh, organizing union heads and uh, against the draft. You know, there were other fines associated with the film. The uh, story about the Eric Haig glass negative found in the cabin, that was always a very ambiguous and vague story in which no dates or names uh, were ever revealed. Um, it was something that um, the filmmaker, the director of uh, City of Gold, the National Film Board film from 1957 on the NFB site, he talks about 200 glass plate negatives that a woman found in a cabin and then she wanted to scrape the emulsion off so she could make a greenhouse and then her right. boss uh, traded her for the clean glass and, um, and as a result those uh, images made it to Ottawa where, which inspired City of Gold. It was kind of this lame story that I wanted to include because of how it rhymed so magnificently with the film find. And because the Hague photographs were such an enormous part of the beginning of the film. Um, but I didn't want to include it if I couldn't say who, what, where, and when. And uh, so I called up Kathy Jones-Gates, who's uh, w one of the two protagonists in the film. And I said, you know, there's this thing that's bugging me about this story. Do you know anything about it? And, or, and she said, I don't, but there's an old timer in town. And uh, we always kvetch about how people get history wrong in this town. And... I'll call her up and see if she knows. And she calls up Irene Cayley and she says, oh, yeah, that was me. I found those, uh, I found those glass plate negatives in my uh, – so it was, that was a shot in the dark. All of a sudden we knew who it was. We had pictures of her. We were able to find other pictures of her in the 1954 parade with that Mastodon. We had their wedding picture, their names, uh, the actual cabin that uh, they'd moved out into Rock Creek. Um, we had the name of the boss, a picture of the boss, a picture of the store. Um, really, the whole story was put together as a uh, viable historic event um, for the first time. Um, so, though that wasn't a discovery from 
the footage itself, it was, uh, I thought, a, a major piece of the puzzle in the story of the Dawson City. Dawson City Frozen Time is currently in release from Kino Lorber, playing now or soon in New York, Los Angeles, San Diego, Chicago, Hartford, Connecticut, and elsewhere. Find the trailer and other links at nitrateville.com. Collecting film has been, one, illegal, Two, vital to preserving our film heritage. Three, occasionally lucrative. Four, usually very expensive as a hobby. Five, almost totally a male pursuit. And six, rarer and rarer in this digital age. And the people who do this thing are sometimes saints, sometimes scoundrels, and sometimes a bit of both. At least that's the story as told in a recent book, A Thousand Cuts, The Bizarre Underground World of Collectors and Dealers Who Saved the Movies, by Dennis Bartok and Jeff Joseph. Besides chronicling this world, they're both part of it, involved in both showing celluloid and preserving it. I spoke to them recently, and somehow I don't think Nitrateville radio listeners will mind that before we got to their book, we immediately got sidetracked on something Jeff's working on involving a couple of beloved comedians. So we have Dennis Bartok, who is director of the American Cinematheque. Hey! And we have Jeff Joseph, who is a film archivist and working on the Laurel and Hardy project. So tell me just quickly about uh, working on Laurel and Hardy. Well, I mean, I've been working with the UCLA Film and Television Archive and the Library of Congress in doing full restorations and preservation on the Laurel and Hardy Hal Roach Library. And it's expensive and time-consuming. My original thought it was going to take about five years. Now I think it's going to take about 20 years to do uh, because there's only so many people at UCLA and elsewhere that are qualified to work on it. But we've been getting great work. By the end of this year, we'll have 17 shorts done and three features, including Sons of the Desert we're working on now. We worked on the Music Box, which won an Academy Award. And we're currently working on the Battle of the Century, which is the Lost Pie Fight silent short. I kind of wonder about that. I mean, how much better is Laurel and Hardy going to look? Spectacularly better. Honestly, if you look at the DVDs, the current DVDs compared to what we're doing, they didn't have access to the original negatives, and we do. We're going off the 35s. We're doing film film cleanup and then digital cleanup on top. They're going to wind up looking and sounding like they were shot yesterday. They really look and sound better than they ever have. Well, and you should mention um, the Music Box, arguably the most famous um, Laurel and Hardy film about discovering, reuniting all of the reels of the original camera negative for the well, first time in well, many years. Well, yeah, the, the music box, uh, two, the three camera negative reels had been lost. Two of the reels finally showed up. The third reel showed up at the Museum of Modern Art of all places. They had one reel of Laurel and Hardy, that reel of missing negative. It got sent to UCLA. And now for the first time in 50-plus years, we're seeing the music box off the camera negative. Plus, uh, although many of the original sound elements were destroyed, they somehow saved the ones from Music Box. We were able to remix the soundtrack 
And so it sounds so quiet. You can now hear the wind in the microphone when they're outside. It's incredible. It's really an amazing thing to both see and hear. And Battle of the Century, of course, which had been uh, essentially lost, had been incomplete for many years, has now been rediscovered um, in the past few years. And you're going to be uh, putting that out as well theatrically. Right. We, the second reel showed up uh, by the film collector. Reel one has existed in nitrate for quite a while. So we've now scanned both of the reels. And we're doing a full digital restoration on those as well. We'll be doing a theatrical on that too, I'm sure. In fact, that's what I wound up doing. I got theatrical rights to the Laurel and Hardy Library. And my goal is to put them back in movie theaters, which is what we've been doing. Excellent. So we, we screened them here uh, at the American Cinematheque, at the Aero Theater. Um, they screened at the Egyptian Theater as well. And it is amazing to see audiences, uh, both younger and older, uh, able to see these films beautifully restored. I mean, we're screening off of... DCP. So, it, you know, this is an example of how um, there are things that that you can only do restoration wise digitally now that will make the films look and sound much, much better. Photochemical restoration does have its its limitations. So I think moving forward, you know, obviously uh, it's got to be a marriage of analog film and digital for the purposes of preservation. I thought it was interesting writing a book about collecting film because you're trying to write a history about something that usually kind of happens underground and a bit in secret. Um, but it's really kind of more about the culture of collecting film. So maybe tell me about that. Well, Je Jeff is really the one to, to talk about that because um, he was involved with it for over 40 years. And in fact, uh, of of the 16 dealers who were indicted in the infamous sort of film buff uh, film busts of the early 1970s, he was the only one that did jail time. I mean, you know, it was certainly a very male hobby, 99% uh, male hobby, maybe a, a large gay contingent within that male group. Um, there's a lot of fear, at least there used to be in the 70s and 80s, a lot of fear part of the, the collecting world because of the legalities involved. And uh, I think when the FBI started coming to the door, it really scared a lot, an awful lot of people back in the 70s, you know? Well, yeah, tell me about your experience with that. Well, I mean, I, I, I was busted when everybody else was, but I didn't even know most of these people until I met them in court when we were, you know, uh, we, had to, we had to show up in court after we were indicted. Um, each of us had our own different judge. You drew the names out of a hat. And my judge was a Nixon appointee who didn't believe in, in uh, suspended sentences. We all made a deal for a six-month suspended sentence, except my judge decided not to use the phrase suspended sentence. So I got hauled away to jail. And this was what year? The bust itself was in 74, but I actually went to jail in, uh, in early 76. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's funny to the extent that any of this is funny that – as soon as I read that in the book, my first thought was apparently yours, which is that it's like Alice's Restaurant. Yeah, it very much felt that way. That you know, uh, what are you on the bench for? I'm here for littering, and they all moved away from me on the bench, and that's kind of what it was like. What are you in for? You know, murder, rape, robbery, copyright infringement, and they all moved away from me on the bench. In the 1920s, the studios, at least some of them, kind of encouraged this. They had like the Universal Show at Home prints and things like that. I'm sure it was it was very expensive, so it was only for very wealthy people. Um, but the idea that you could own movies at home was not totally horrifying to Hollywood at that point. No, no, but, but bear in mind, most of those were short subjects, although there were some features, certainly. But again, they were either 16 millimeter or 9.5 millimeter or something that was not, you know, quote unquote, professional 35 millimeter. They were a lot 
more okay with that than they would have been with 35 millimeter. And then what happened in the in the sound era? Uh, was there always kind of a an underground collecting? Sure, but I think until you know the internet you know hit in the in the nineties, uh, people didn't really realize how much was out there. There was the Big Reel and a few other magazines that existed, but that was about it. Really, there was maybe what ten thousand film collectors in the U.S., maybe ten thousand the rest of the world at its height. But and now there's nowhere near close to that. I don't think we guesstimated that at the height of the collectors market in the U.S., which was probably the late eighties, that there may have been around. 5,000 active collectors. And the way that we know that is because that's how many subscriptions there were to the big reel, according to Donald Key, who was the publisher. And the big reel was really the collector's Bible, and it was the main kind of uh, information, uh, you know, uh, platform pre-internet. Uh, for collectors, that's where dealers would advertise. Uh, Jeff famously took out multi-page ads uh, for his company, Sabucat. Um, and so collectors uh, would go through all sorts of... <laughs> they would go through, uh, uh, jump through all sorts of hoops to be the first to get their hands on the big reel um, so they could scan the ads and try and nab a print before anybody else. And uh, when the big reel stopped publishing in the 90s, it kind of heralded the, the decline and death of the film collecting subculture. But we figured that almost everybody who was an active film collector probably would have subscribed to the big reel. So we're looking at maybe 5,000 active people in the U.S., maybe another, what do you think, three to 5,000 worldwide. So maybe 10,000 total. And, and I was kind of doubling that only on the theory that probably there were people who were too paranoid to get to be real, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, at one point, you know, the FBI and the Justice Department during the film bust era of the 1970s were reading the big reel themselves. And they, you know, a, a lot of dealers would come up with uh, pseudonyms or fictitious, uh, fictitious names. It was a... Uh, uh, one of the East Coast dealers that we dealt with, um, who was it? Was it? Um, everybody knew him by his his pseudonym. T. H. Yes, T. H. Shaffron. Shaffron was his pen name for the big reel. Uh, and of course, this was to try and hide from the authorities, from the MPAA, the studios, and the FBI. And at one point, they actually did uh, go to Donald Key. And they tried to force him to provide a list of everybody that advertised, that took out ads in the big reel listing films for sale. And he refused to give up that information to his credit and was fined by the court. So God bless him that he didn't buckle under. But it shows the pressure that they were putting to bear on everybody back in the mid-'70s. It was really, uh, you know, we interviewed... Um, uh, the man, uh, James Boros, who was head of anti-piracy operations for the MPAA in the, the mid to late 1970s, and he put it uh, very eloquently. He said it was a frantic period. He said the MPAA and the studios were frantic, the collectors were frantic, nobody was talking to anybody else, and they were all incredibly paranoid. Well, now, I've heard of things like you know, William K. Everson with the Theater Huff Film Society in the 1950s, that he was he was fairly loudly 
proclaiming that he was going to show the the silent Ben Hur to show that it was better than this 1959 remake, and MGM gave him some grief about that. But it doesn't seem quite like there was that level of paranoia. Why do you think they they went off so much in the 1970s? <laughs> well, you thought well your, the, your theory has to do with Patty Hearst, right? The story I heard from people back in the 70s was that the FBI was embarrassed that Patty Hearst was out and about and that busting a bunch of film people would be easy and cheap and free publicity, so let's do it, basically. Now, whether that was true or not, I have no idea. It's a good story, though. Obviously, there were film collectors uh, going back to the earliest days of cinema. Uh, Henri Langlois, who was the co-founder of the Cinémathèque Française, was probably the biggest film collector in history. By some estimates, he rescued over 60,000 prints, which formed the basis for the Cinémathèque Francoise uh, collection. Um, you mentioned Bill Everson, who taught at NYU for many years. Uh, I actually took uh, classes from Bill Everson, and he would screen rare prints from his collection. I remember he, sh he showed us uh, his own print of Bulldog Drummond Strikes Back, uh, which is an amazing, amazing film. And uh, I had to drop off a term paper once at Bill's house, and I got a peek inside, and the hallways and every room uh, visible was just stacked with film prints. Well, and that does seem to be the way that film collectors decorate their homes, uh, well. as you talk about it. The, yep. uh, and, the, and there are a number of quotes. Uh, I, I scribbled down a couple of them. Uh, several variations on most film collectors don't have good marriages. Or uh, I think it's Joe Dante who says, you spend money on films that you don't spend on having a child, basically. That there, there seems to be this sort of mentality of uh, this pack rat behavior in, in collectors. I think there was also the feeling of, having something special you know i have a print of a movie that no one else has that makes me special that sort of thing well and you describe yourself as at times like a bartender to collectors therapist, a therapist, a therapist yes. or a bartender yeah they would call up and they would complain that oh god i need to have this print but i don't have the money to spend on it and uh jeff would say then why are you why are you spending money on it I used to tell collectors that 16 millimeter collectors, if they wanted to get a divorce, start collecting 35. <laughs> That'll get them a divorce real quick. So, uh, but there is also at least a social aspect to it. And I mean, this is what I've seen going to the film conventions that they have in the Midwest. Maybe it's more just Midwest niceness coming out, but um, that, you know, if you have it, you usually want to share it. The The mythical collector who just sits on it all and lonely looks at it himself is is somewhat rare, at least. It, it's somewhat rare, but I certainly have met people like that. But, you know, you're right. Most people want to share what they have. And part of it's showing off, look at the special thing I have. But part of it's also, what's the point of having a movie just sitting in a can unless you're showing it to somebody? The whole point of it is to be able to run it. Right. It's, there's a wonderful story that Kevin Brownlow, the Academy Award-winning British film historian and, and documentarian shared with us that he got a call from a film collector in England. He uh, went over to his house and he took Kevin into the back where there was a kind of bomb shelter uh, where he kept his film prints and he showed him a print that he had of a very rare, uh, I think it was a 1917 Abel Gantz short, a nitrate print. 
And uh, Kevin said, uh, well, that, that's quite rare. How much do you want for it? And the man responded, oh, no, I don't want to sell it. I just want to know that you want it. <laughs> I remember it well. And, yes. <laughs> and to remind himself who wanted this print, he put a little note in the can that said Kevin Brownlow. Well, the collector died. And after he died, his wife was going through his cans and he found this. She found this and called Kevin up and said, oh, my husband obviously wanted to leave this to you. <laughs> and so she gave the print to Kevin, which to me is the ultimate, like, turning of the karmic wheel. <laughs> so he wound up with it anyway. And the collector was probably, like, spinning in his grave. Now, tell me about... Um... There, there are a number of people in Hollywood who had uh, collections. I don't think anybody will be surprised that uh, Hugh Hefner was one, for instance. But it became a problem when Roddy McDowell, uh, when they went after him. How did that happen? Well, Roddy, uh, like all collectors, was occasionally deaccessioning or selling film prints. He would upgrade or he would no longer want you know, this particular print. So he, he was not a dealer, but he would occasionally sell prints. And he was uh, buying and then very occasionally reselling prints through a notorious character named Ray Atherton. And uh, Ray was a, a later a video distributor and a film dealer and by all accounts was one of the strangest, scuzziest <laughs> characters uh, in this whole underground world. Um, Ted Newsom, who's a documentarian who worked for uh, Ray in later years, gave some of the most amazing and <laughs> colorful descriptions uh, in the book about him. He was, he was kind of giant. He was really overweight. Uh, he was a wicked alcoholic. He would, you know, according to Ted, he would... Uh, go to the liquor store across the street at 10 or 10.30 when it opened. He would buy a bottle of rum, and usually by 1 p.m. he would be passed out at his desk. And uh, so Roddy was working with Ray because Ray had what every collector wanted, which was access to prints. And word had gotten out to the FBI and the Justice Department that Ray Atherton had been selling prints, and on a raid at the home of an associate of Atherton's, they discovered a list of prints that belonged to Roddy McDowell that he was apparently offering for sale. And they interviewed him at first, um, and then they kind of sensed that they were going to have a big kind of name target in their sights, and they got a search warrant, and they served it on him. They burst into his home, they seized his film collection, um, under enormous duress, he gave them a very long statement and kind of named names of other well-known celebrity film collectors in Hollywood, including Rock Hudson and Mel Torme. And eventually, I think he got part or all of his film collection back, but uh, he essentially stopped collecting. He stopped doing private screenings at his house, and, and from from... What we could gather, speaking to people who were friends of him, it was a deeply scarring experience. And it also earned him, probably unfairly, a, a reputation as kind of a fink 
for ratting out these other collectors. As far as we could tell, it did not lead to any further arrests. Um, in fact, we spoke with, with the late Bob Osborne of Turner Classic Movies fame, who knew both Roddy and Rock Hudson very well, and it helped to, to archive or uh, uh, organize Rock Hudson's film collection. And he said that Hudson had actually built a fake wall in the back room of his house uh, uh, with fake bricks to disguise the entrance to his film vault so that when the FBI eventually came looking for him, uh, he was like, I don't collect film prints. I got nothing here. And they, they didn't find anything and they left. It was kind of an amazing story. We asked uh, Bob Osborne if Hudson had an interesting film collection. He said, well, if by interesting you mean prints of all of his own movies, then yes. Right. <laughs> and they, he was not alone in that. We heard that Cary Grant and several other people had had uh, very healthy collections of their own movies. So, which is probably, probably no surprise. So, but there were wonderful stories as well. Bob Osborne talked about his early days in collecting in the 1960s in Hollywood and how he was friends with a dancer named Jeff Parker and they bought 16 millimeter prints of MGM musicals and Jeff Parker uh, worked in a uh, touring stage review with Ginger Rogers uh, at a time when her film career had, had really kind of petered out and she was doing live stage work. And so through that connection, he got to know Sid Charisse and uh, Fayard Nicholas of the Nicholas Brothers and all of these amazing, amazing dancers and performers and they would have private screenings. So these young sort of, you know, film-loving uh, buffs would uh, be sitting there in the dark with a 16-millimeter projector rattling away with the legendary stars of those movies. You know, they showed Barclays of Broadway with Ginger Rogers sitting there in the dark with them. And it's one of the reasons why Bob Osborne said, even up until he died, that he, uh, he couldn't bear to be parted with his 16-millimeter print collection, even though he no longer showed them. He wanted to watch a movie. He'd watch it on TCM or on Blu-ray. But the films had meant so much to him at, some, at one point in his life that he couldn't bear to sell them. And that was really lovely, very, you know, it shows the emotional tie that collectors had to uh, these prints, to the physical objects. A lot of the collectors who were older weren't really showing their film prints anymore because it's so hard to just deal with. I mean, big, heavy prints if you're an older person. But yeah, they couldn't they couldn't get rid of them. There's the the one guy who decorated each can beautifully. I mean, they really are sort of unique objects of art at that point. Yeah, that's Rick, Rick Luares is the collector you're mentioning, who who is. Uh, Unique in a number of ways, he is one of the only Latino collectors uh, that we know about in the underground world. Um, he said he, he never met another Latino collector. Um, and he was a family man. He was a truck driver. He was initially a graphic designer and a very talented artist, but he said he couldn't make enough money to support his family. So he became a truck driver, um, and as he put it, made a lot of money so he could buy posters and film prints. And he has an amazing, it's really an art gallery or art installation in the back of his home here in the Los Angeles area where he's got incredibly rare posters from 1940s and 50s science fiction films. He's got one of the original uh, 
devices that visual effects expert Kenneth Strickfaden created for the universal horror Frankenstein movies, you know, the, when uh, uh, Dr. Frankenstein would be in his lab and you'd see all those amazing sort of whirling, spinning, sparking devices. He has one of those. He's got one of the Technicolor eyes from the 1950s War of the Worlds. And he has uh, a beautiful original IB Technicolor print of War of the Worlds that we screened here at the Egyptian Theater for the 50th anniversary of the film with the two stars of the film, Gene Barry and Ann Robinson here uh, in person. And... Rick has had health problems, he's had hip surgery, and he openly admits that he's no longer physically able to screen his film prints. His projection booth is now filled with, you know, his walker and cane and medical equipment. And so he has these beautiful and still extremely rare 35mm prints lined up in his back gallery. Um, and he's decorated the film cans with uh, kind of shellacked little reproductions of the poster artwork. He has prints of Dracula and Frankenstein and The Day the Earth Stood Still in 35mm. And these are prints that would still sell for, yeah, probably four or 5,000 or more um, should he choose to sell them. But they sit there. Essentially, they've now become objects of art because he doesn't screen them anymore. And the cans themselves uh, are artworks. And one of the things that you talk about um, is a lot of times people are motivated by an area of film that's basically kind of an orphan. I mean, there's there's 3D people, there's exploitation people like Mike Vrainy from Something Weird. Um, that it's you find a little area that some that everyone else seems to ignore. I think that's true. I mean, there, there are very few female collectors, but the very few I I met seemed to specialize. I knew one that only collected Star Trek, for example. Well, you, you should talk about, uh, so, so Jeff had the world's largest private uh, archive of uh, trailers. Trailers and, and 3D, both. And, yeah. and dual system 35-millimeter um, 3D movies from the classic era of the early 1950s. I mean, maybe you could talk about why you got interested in those two fairly obscure areas of Honestly, well, I mean, the trailers specifically, I mean, they weren't worth selling through the big reel. You get maybe 20 bucks a pop for them, so they started piling up. We decided to maybe organize them and see what we had. And then at one point in the uh, early 90s, I got a call from someone at Fox who wanted to rent one of the trailers. And it was, oh, okay, I give it to you, you hand it back to me, and a check. This is pretty good. So it kind of became a, a way of doing business, of keeping the trailer archive going, by renting out trailers to people who needed them, studios and documentary filmmakers. The 3D was a bit different. I mean, 3D was in 2003. We realized it was the 50th anniversary of 3D. Nobody was doing anything about it. So I worked with Bob Fermanac and some others, Dan Sims, and working on, on doing a 3D expo because no one had been doing it. So yeah, both, both of those things, trailers and 3D, were kind of orphaned in a way. And you had unique dual system 3D prints that, that were the only copy of the movie that had both the right eye and the left eye because the negative had been lost. That's true. Which, which, which of those titles? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, Was it Eye the Jury? Was well, that... Eye the Jury is definitely one of them. There were several. Gog was one uh, that we had only the one eye uh, MGM had, but not the other eye. There's, there's several like that. And, of course, the RKO titles that Warner Brothers owns are a real mess, French Line and the others. Uh, it's unknown if they're even printable at this point. So there's probably seven, eight, or nine features that the prints are the last remaining, you know, elements for those movies. Well, and one of the most remarkable stories uh, you tell is about that lost 3D short, was it a, a Day in the Country? Yeah. You should tell that 
story. That's a wonderful. Well, I mean, Day, Day in the Country is, was a lost uh, Robert L. Lippert short. And uh, I was speaking to this uh, guy back east, and he's reading me a list of films for sale. And he says, Day in the Country. And I stopped him, and he said, well, that's a 3D short. And I said, yeah, I know how much. He said $500, which was way too much money, but I didn't even hesitate. I just sent him the money. He vanished. He took my money, took the film. I never heard from him again, which was incredibly frustrating. Finally, I hired a private eye a friend of mine, and we found him eventually. Got him on the phone. He was sort of apologetic. He just said he had tax issues, and he needed money, and yada, yada, yada. And I said, well, I don't really want the money. I want the film. And he explained that it was in the back of his pickup truck, and the pickup truck had been towed somewhere because he couldn't pass the thing. So I called the storage facility that had the pickup truck. And by God, I explained to her what I wanted, and she went out, and she called back to the phone and says, I have a can here that says a day in the country. Is that what you mean? And I said, yes. And she made me pay her for the storage for the car, which I get on my credit card. And by God, she FedExed me the short, and that's why that short survives today. A day in the country lives. But you had to extract it. That's um, true. Well, the print was uh, a, a faded anaglyph print. So uh, Dan Sims and I worked on this. Uh, we extracted the left eye and right eye from that and created new left eye and right eye elements, which, as, as I say, now exist. And the short now survives. It didn't before, but now it does. And you premiered it for the first time. 2006. 2006 at the uh, second. second edition of the World 3D Expo. Right. Um, we did the last, the third, and probably last one in uh, 2013 here at the Egyptian Theater um, as well. And Jeff um, sold his collection to the uh, Packard Institute for the Humanities. Um, and it's interesting because uh, you wouldn't immediately think, well, 50,000 trailers, you know, uh, why would those be interesting? Well, as it turns out, trailers were often cut from footage that was uh, outs and trims, basically. yeah, outs and trims that was not used. So it might have been alternate takes. Occasionally, there would be introductions in trailers by the filmmaker or the producer or cast members. So the trailers themselves are very unique artifacts. He had the only copy of the uh, only existing nitrate copy of the original trailer for Citizen Kane uh, that we know of, um, which is a very, which is a really remarkable and very famous. Uh, trailer for the film. And it's out there, you know, on the Blu-ray and whatnot, but that's all derived from the nitrate print that we had. Well, and that brings us to a question then, which is, I mean, it seems like by the end of the book, a lot of these collectors are saying that it's kind of pointless when we can all have the little silver disc and, you know, a more beautiful, digitally cleaned up version of something you know, is is so readily available is thirty bucks away on Amazon from all of us. Um, so what's how is how's that affecting collecting, and what's the case to be made for film anyway? Well, I mean, collecting hasn't died completely, but there are just fewer and fewer people who are willing to take the time and money uh, to do, especially a thirty-five millimeter. But there there are still some collectors out there. It's just a far smaller hobby than it used to be. That's all. Yeah, there is a younger generation of collectors out there. You know, we interviewed a number of them, and there's a chapter about them. Phil Blankenship, who has an amazing collection of over 700 um, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and grindhouse prints, almost all of them 35 millimeter. He works at, a, at uh, Amoeba uh, Records here in Los Angeles and programs at the New Beverly Cinema. Mike Williamson, who's an editor and filmmaker, who has a collection of uh, 16 millimeter horror films. Jack Theakston, who used to work at the Capitol Theater in New York, um, 
and uh, is uh, a collector. He, he, in fact, he's, he's found a, a number of, of kind of very interesting and fascinating nitrate uh, shorts and ephemera. But the reality is, is that um, film collecting is... It's technically demanding. It's expensive. Uh, if you're collecting a 35 millimeter, it takes up a huge footprint in your home. Uh, the prints are stinky. All film prints are subject to decay eventually. Um, no matter how well they're stored, all film will eventually decay. Uh, best estimates for new prints that are made now is that they may last 150 years. And for older prints... It's anybody's guess. We're lucky any old prints survive, honestly. Yeah. It's harder and harder to find older prints that are runnable. And projecting 35 millimeter in the home, um, I mean, a number of people, uh, Jeff included, said that it was for many years a rich man's hobby because it was expensive to, you had to get two 35 millimeter projectors. You had to have a home theater that had a, a kind of a large enough throw between the projectors and the screen to make it you know, worthwhile. Um, amazingly, we were able to interview and visit a number of collectors who had built these beautiful mini movie palaces in their homes. And sadly, a number of those are going away as the collectors get older or, or pass away. Uh, that's a kind of architectural legacy that is disappearing as well, especially here in Los Angeles. Uh, one collector, Matt Spiro, who is a former, he's a retired projectionist, has built this beautiful miniature movie palace in his Hollywood home uh, that is decorated with essentially the, the bones of, of grand movie palaces that were torn down in Long Beach in the 1970s. So the curtains and the little box office and wall sconces, and they were all from different theaters. And he, he knows, he can point them out. He says, oh, this is from, you know, this theater and that. And, you know, he used to drive around in his car and he would see them tearing down another theater and he would hop out and he would go inside and he'd say, can I grab those seats or can I grab, you know, those light fixtures? And he's now moving from his home and he's going to have to take his theater apart and it'll be gone. So uh, that's an invaluable part of our shared cinema heritage, our, the legacy of film that is disappearing. And that was one of the reasons as well that we felt compelled to document this scene before it disappeared. You know, the other thing is that every collector we spoke to had found something unique, whether it was home movie footage, uh, whether it was outtakes. Um, Mike Schleiger, who was a projectionist here at the Egyptian Theater, had 70 millimeter outtakes from Spartacus that he gave to uh, Robert Harris when Harris was doing his restoration of the film that helped to fill in some of the scenes that had been cut out after the preview version of the movie. Um, so I think it's kind of the same argument for people who collect uh, music on vinyl. Yes, if you want to hear Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon, there are literally a thousand ways to hear it. Um, and the same goes for Singing in the Rain. Uh, you can buy it now on Blu-ray, you can stream it, and it will look amazing. But then there are always strange, hidden, lost... Um, you know, aspects of film uh, that only collectors have managed to 
preserve the four minutes of missing footage from the 1933 King Kong that were discovered in the late 1960s by um, Wes Shank, a uh, uh, East Coast collector, is one of the most famous examples. That's the only reason why we have that footage from King Kong is he got somebody uh, in the 30s had cut those scenes out of a nitrate print of the film at a time when King Kong was censored and it was um, those scenes of Kong sort of toying erotically with Fay Ray's dress and stomping or munching on natives when he when he attacks the native village bursts through the gates on Skull Island and uh, he got his hands on those and for many years he made dupe copies of those in 16 millimeter and circulated them to other collectors because he was afraid that he would be arrested by the FBI and Justice Department for having that footage. And then eventually, after everything had kind of cooled down, he gave the footage to the distributor who owned the rights to King Kong at the time. And I was shocked. I said, well, what did you get from it? And he goes, I didn't really get anything. He said, I, you know, I didn't own it. Uh, I didn't make the movie. It didn't belong to me. It belonged to everybody who loved King Kong. And that's really kind of film collecting at its, at its finest. Um, is wanting to preserve and share things that would have otherwise um, slipped through the cracks and disappeared forever. Thanks to my guests. First, Bill Morrison, as well as thanks to Matt Berry and Rodrigo Brandau at Kino Lorber for setting us up. Then, Dennis Bartok and Jeff Joseph. There will be a link for their book, A Thousand Cuts, in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. In the next Nitrateville Radio, we'll enter the world where comedy was queens like Mabel Normand, Alice Howell, and the unforgettable Louise Fazenda. I talked to silent film historian Steve Massa, whose new book Slapstick Divas is packed with more female slapstick comedians than you ever imagined existed. Don't miss it. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And, like I said at the beginning, please take a moment and leave Nitrateville Radio a review at iTunes. That really helps us get the word out.